My name is Gwen, and we've been investing. Well, we bought our first property in 2013, but we've been listening to Jason's podcast since 2011. Well, after the market crashed in 2008, um, we needed to do something different. And so we started listening to different podcasts about real estate, and, um, and it just kind of went from there. <laughs> um, we're in Memphis right now, Indianapolis, St. Louis, in um, Kansas City. We kept listening to Jason. It keeps us connected and it, he teaches a lot about different things and it keeps us connected on what's going on with different markets and even the economy. <laughs> I enjoy that so and my husband does too. Welcome to the Creating Wealth Show with Jason Hartman. You're about to learn a new slant on investing, some exciting techniques, and fresh new approaches to the world's most historically proven asset class that will enable you to create more wealth and freedom than you ever thought possible. Jason is a genuine, self-made multimillionaire who's actually been there and done it. He's a successful investor, lender, developer, and entrepreneur who's owned properties in 11 states, had hundreds of tenants and been involved in thousands of real estate transactions. This program will help you follow in Jason's footsteps on the road to your financial independence day. You really can do it. And now, here's your host, Jason Hartman, with the complete solution for real estate investors. Welcome to episode 1138-1138. This is Jason Hartman. Thank you so much for joining me today. I've got Adam here with me for this show because I needed to recruit a millennial. Adam, welcome. How are you doing? I'm doing well, and I don't get offended by the term, so we're good to go. <laughs> Do millennials get offended by the millennial term? I thought they felt they, like they were so special. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it depends. I think it's millennials get upset whenever we hear people talking about how we're snowflakes, but then mm -hmm. they get upset whenever we do anything. Yeah. Well, you know what's interesting about that? I just read an article, and maybe I posted it in our content group. You know, you're in there, the Venture Alliance members are in there. And it, it's about, I think it was an economist, actually, who was predicting an age war. And, you know, there is kind of a lot of ageism. And, and what's sort of interesting about this is that I didn't sense this very much in the past. You know, I certainly understand before millennials came along, we talked about Gen X, my generation. We talked about baby boomers, the generation before me. You know, but now it does seem like we are really defining these demographic cohorts and throwing these words around a lot. I don't know if people are more aware nowadays or what the thing is, but I would contend, and this is an interesting thing when it comes to, you know, any sort of discriminatory language, whether it be racism, sexism, whatever that the more we define things and the more we mention things, in many ways, it really does make the problem worse. I think a lot of people would just go about their lives and not think about all this stuff if we didn't have such a uh, heavy weight of identity politics going on. Uh, you might disagree with me, but you know what do you what do you think about that? I mean, the fact that the government, counts race, for example, right? You know, in the census, every 10 years, you know, it's a big deal. We got to divide everybody up by their race, right? Well, what if we just stopped doing that? And we just, hey, we have people, <laughs> you know, here are, we've got 320 million 
people, <laughs> right? Rather than well, dividing them all up. Does that make it worse? I don't know exactly how that would work because I think we do have to acknowledge the fact that in today's society, there is still, and I know you're probably going to hate to hear this, there's still an Im implicit bias that people oh, have. Like if you watch no, it, it's, but no it's, question it's there. crazy. There Some of the studies I've shown just the yeah. way that even, I read a study a while back where they took images of people and just flash them at people I, of all races yeah, and they had your instant reaction and mm -hmm. even african-american people thought that other african-americans were more thuggish or more dangerous and were older than they were like they would show mm -hmm. them pictures of kids and they would say oh yeah that kid's 15 but they were really 10 and mm. it was i think that part is still in society so i do think it's still important to not necessarily <laughs> right. differentiate but acknowledge that it's still there. Yeah, of course it's still there. I mean, this is just human nature and it probably will always be there to a, you know, hopefully a lesser degree in the future. But the point I'm making is that by constantly hammering on this stuff, I think it gets worse. And I, I remember back to the LA riots in the early nineties, the Rodney King ordeal, you know, and you know, this just constant discussion about it. It just sort of, I don't know. I, I just, I've, I, it begs the question. I'm not saying I have the answer. I'm just saying I have the question. Well, I think that's an important part. I think if we as a society actually, I think we might be able to do what you're talking about if our society was willing to sit down and have an actual discussion about the issue first. I think if there was a big discussion across society about all of the differences and figuring it out, then I think we could start to not necessarily ignore it, but not pay as much attention to it. But I think until we do that, you, you we're don't not think we've forward. been doing that for decades? <laughs> really? <laughs> I mean, it's uh, we have lots of discussions about this stuff. I but, think a but, lot of the discussions, though, based around the fact of y'all need to get over it, and the other side saying, eh, y'all need to acknowledge it. And I think it, there's a lot of talking by each other but not talking to each other. Well, that's fair enough. But, you know, the reason we bring this up is that when we look at these demographic cohorts by age and the way they impact the housing market and the way they impact the economy, it is pretty interesting. But this constant defining of, hey, millennials are like this. And, you know, generally the, the ideal is that they're over entitled, they're spoiled, they're catered to. And like you said, snowflakes and all of that stuff. And certainly that's not true of all millennials. Whenever you define, there's a quote about that. Uh, I can't remember from who, but a philosopher, you know, whenever you define me, you negate me, right? But we have to talk about this. And the, the reason race, of course, is in the census is because that's how government aid is doled out, right? So what if we didn't have all that government aid? And what if we didn't count everybody like this? And we just said people, they're just people, right? And it does beg the question, but millennials and their mortgage habits. Now, this is, of course, the largest demographic cohort in American history. It's about 80 million people. So it is a big deal. The baby boomers being about 4 million people smaller, the prior largest demographic cohort, huge, huge influences on the economy. You know, a lot of millennials are renting. They're not buying. But because their numbers are so large, when you've got 80 million people, they definitely have an impact on the home buying market, even if a, a smaller percentage of them 
are buying or at least buying at the same age as their predecessors did, uh, Gen X and, and baby boomers. So you posted an interesting article about this, Adam, and, and what's really fascinating about it is that it takes 10 different major real estate markets, some of which we are in and we're active in and we're recommending, talks about millennials' mortgage habits in those markets. Tell us more. So I don't know if everybody recalls, if you were at Meet the Masters last year, you'll recall this. Darren Bloomquist came and spoke and he was talking about demographics and he was talking about how millennials weren't yet, they weren't seeing them jump in to the market and he didn't really know exactly what impact that was going to have. But nowadays, millennials are jumping in, but they're buying cheaper homes, Mm -hmm. but they're also putting less money down Mm -hmm. and they're putting less than 10% in. And the good news is their home payments are only about 25% of their take-home pay, of their pay. Right, and so why why we're bringing this up, folks, is that, look, at a lot of people are predicting the next recession, the next economic crisis, the next housing crisis. And there are points on either side of this, right? I yeah. mean, the millennials, they don't have a lot of stake in these houses because their average down payment is only like 8%. So it's fairly low. It's not no money down. It's not 5% down, but it's still a pretty low amount of skin in the game, if you will, as the saying goes. But, I mean, is it fair to say that millennials are a fairly frugal bunch? I think that is a fair uh, statement. Oh, I would say so. I mean, if you look at it, why did millennials essentially create Uber? Why did they create Lyft? Why did they create, you know, the sharing economy? Because Mm -hmm. we looked at it and said, hey, there's a cheaper way to do this. Right. And using technology, especially, Let's do it. And so I think a lot of it and the whole thing is the millennials have taken the minimalism movement way beyond where it was before, if it even existed before. And millennials are more about experiences and those kind of things over stuff in a lot of ways. Not everybody, obviously. But I think it's definitely moved to more pay for experiences. Don't spend money where you don't have to. And, you know, share, essentially. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. Well, the sharing economy, as I've said many times, is uh, pretty amazing that it's taken all this unused capacity out of the world and it's put it to productive use. So it's really an incredible thing. Is Travis Kalanick, the, the, one of the Uber founders, is he a millennial? He probably is, but I don't actually know that for sure. I don't know. How old is Uber founder. I'm Googling that right now. <laughs> well, I'm actually not Googling it because Google is evil. I'm binging it. Oh, I'm Googling uh, it. But, um, but I won't have time <laughs> he's to read 42, it. He's oh. 42, so he's just outside the, the millennial Yes, he faction. was born in 1976. So there you go. So he is a Gen Xer. Travis is in my generation. <laughs> However, <laughs> Garrett Camp, the other founder, it says he's 40. So he's borderline there. Yeah, he's still technically a Gen Xer, but but barely. <laughs> yeah, he could cl- he could claim to be a millennial and get away with it, probably. Right there, you go. There you <laughs> go. Even if carded, you know. Yeah. Okay, so let's listen to one of our blogcast, which is available on Alexa. By the way, if you're subscribing to uh, Jason Hartman's Real Estate Update on Alexa, you'll get these. And here's something I do want to say is that, look, folks, a lot of this stuff is stuff that we came up with a few years back, but it's still completely applicable today. The real estate investing game is a fairly slow-moving world. You know, these principles do not 
really change much, if at all, you know, even over the course of decades. Of course, there's news and current events, right? But overall, these are big, like, macro trends. So even if you're listening to Flashback Friday on this show, or you're listening to any of our older content, it's still extremely valuable. So here is an article that appeared on my blog, and this was a, a few years ago, and so we're talking a bit about the Great Recession. You know, there, there's some very important uh, points in here, and you can get this all on in your Alexa flash briefing. So every day when you wake up or whenever you want to hear the news, just have Alexa play it or just say to Alexa, play Jason Hartman's real estate update, and, and you'll get all this stuff. So I I will go ahead and play this, Adam, and let's listen in and we'll have some commentary on it. Welcome to the JasonHartman.com blogcast. This is an audio version, professionally narrated, of our written blog at JasonHartman.com. You can also listen to our full-length podcast, The Creating Wealth Show, at JasonHartman.com or on iTunes. And episodes are usually about an hour long. They're very in-depth. And we have a whole bunch of celebrity guests on that show, from Steve Forbes to Robert Kiyosaki to Harry Dent, on and on and on. Get the full-length, in-depth show as well at JasonHartman.com or on iTunes. And here's our blog. What's behind the housing shortage? By a number of indicators, the U.S. housing market is bouncing back after its massive collapse of 2008. But U.S. homeowner rates are at near-historic lows with few first-time buyers. Among the factors contributing to those low rates are an often overlooked but essential one. In many areas around the country, there's a housing shortage. The supply of available homes to buy is lower than the demand. After the housing collapse put unprecedented numbers of homes into foreclosure and millions of homeowners into crisis, home prices have begun to rise. New regulations on the mortgage industry have reined in the reckless lending practices that contributed to the collapse and the recession that followed. In the years that followed the collapse, the inventory of available houses for purchase ebbed and flowed as foreclosures crawled through the legal system. And when they did... Banks and other financial institutions often auction them off in batches to large domestic and foreign investment firms without offering access to individual buyers and investors. In some areas, too, the number of available homes to buy was affected by the zombie phenomenon. Homes left abandoned by homeowners in trouble, but which hadn't been formally foreclosed. Add to that a slow recovery for new home starts, and it's easy to see how a chronic shortage of homes could shadow the nation's recovery. But there's another often overlooked reason for low inventories in many markets around the country. People who own homes now aren't selling them, and that's creating a bottleneck that cuts off first-time buyers and high-end sellers alike. One aspect of the American dream of owning a home is the starter house. In the traditional paradigm, young people save up enough to buy a modest first home, the starter where they begin raising children and creating a solid career. Then, when things were looking up financially, they'd move up to a bigger, more lavish house. That pattern might repeat a time or two before retirement, when they'd once again begin contemplating either moving up again or downsizing into a more manageable empty nest. But current economic conditions mean that the choice is less likely for many Americans. And as a new article from Inman points out, understanding the dynamics behind the slowdown in selling is key to formulating predictions for the future of the housing supply and trends in home prices. The rise in prices have an indirect effect of chilling home sales. One reason has to do with U.S. capital gains tax laws, which underwent a major change in May 1997. Before then, if a homeowner sold a house for a profit, that profit was automatically subject to a whopping capital gains tax penalty. 
The only way to avoid the capital gains tax was to put the sale money into a property of equal or higher value within. Now, one thing I want to mention on that, our listeners are all familiar with, and we've done many shows on the huge benefits of investment property 1031 tax deferred exchanges. And this section of the IRS code, I believe it's still the same section, they just changed it after 97, is, is the narrator is talking about in reading our blog. It's called section 1034. That's when you trade a personal residence versus an investment property. Two years. In 1997, though, that all changed, thanks to the Taxpayer Relief Act, which allowed for a one-time tax exemption of up to $125,000 in capital gains. That meant that homeowners could sidestep the tax if they bought another house. But as prices rose, fewer could opt to move up to a pricier dwelling, because their gains on their existing property would exceed the tax cap and therefore end up costing them money. And so that was ultimately increased. Low interest rates also played a role in keeping homeowners from selling. If owners have refinanced the home thanks to those historic low rates, it's less likely they'll be willing to put the property up for sale and risk facing higher rates on a new purchase. This, Adam, is a very big deal in the current and coming market. This is a huge deal. Uh, Your thoughts? I definitely agree because I know we purchased our home here in Austin right around six years ago. And we got 3.5%. And so if we wanted to pull money out by refinancing, we'd probably be looking at getting 2 to 3% increase, I would think. Yeah. And so, and, I mean, and, and whoa, 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 wait a second, though. Don't just gloss over that. That's not a 2 to 3% increase. If it's 3%, it's almost double what you're oh, yeah. paying. You know, <laughs> that's the thing, you know, I love how politicians talk about, well, hey, we're going to raise the sales tax by 1% from, you know, 6 to 7%. That's not 1%. It's a lot more than 1%, you know, as a, as a relational increase. But yeah, go ahead. So, I mean, that's kept us from even considering it at this point. So, yeah, it's going to be all over because we have all sorts of mortgages locked in across the country at under 4%. And at that rate, it's going to be years, if ever, before it gets down around there and people think about refinancing. Right. And when you when you say that these mortgages across the country, you're not talking about your own investment portfolio, but you are because those have very low mortgages too. But you're just talking about the broader housing market. Yeah. Right? I mean, but even our investment properties, you know, when we started, they were under five. We got Mm -hmm. our first one or two at five or less at the rate that what the Fed's talking about, that's not going to come around for a while. So I mean, we'll have to look at it and see, does it make financial sense to refinance at a higher rate in order to get this money out and invest in other places? So this is a good time to just take a little tangent here and talk about the dangers of a centrally managed economy and government intervention in the markets through Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, especially in these cases, because they create these artificially low interest rates that cause all sorts of malinvestment. You know, you can think of the obvious ways, but one less obvious way, and same is true, this is essentially the same thing that's true of rent control. So one of our video editors, Patrick, who actually I interviewed on the podcast a couple of years ago, you know, he lives in a rent control department with his wife in San Francisco. And they're paying, I think they said, $2,400 a month for a place that's worth over a million five. And, you know, he and his wife, his wife is a patent attorney, okay? I mean, she's got to be pulling in some bucks, right, doing that. They just 
can't move. And I don't want to say they can't. Maybe they can afford to. I'm not sure. But why would they? They want to move, yet they're kind of stuck. The same way people with these artificially low interest rate mortgages will be sort of stuck, if you will, because they just can't find anything that compares. Remember, 1% in mortgage rate is equal to about 10% in purchase price. So in order for these people with mortgages that are maybe 2 to 3% lower than the market rate at any given time, that we would have to see a housing price correction of 20 to 30% for it to be equal. That's huge. So the big macro case here is that, you know, we shouldn't have a centrally planned economy with a, a Federal Reserve and government intervention, because then we would have never had those low rates in the first place. And then people listening will say, well, Jason, how would we have ever gotten out of the recession if they couldn't come in and artificially lower rates? Well, they wouldn't have put us into it in the first place, is my contention. <laughs> but, you know, these are big, broad macro topics that we will continue to discuss and debate on the show. Thoughts, Adam? Well, I would agree with that. I mean, if they got out of the mortgage business and focused instead on getting more money in your pocket in other ways, whether that be through the government or through private investment and encouraging that, they could not worry necessarily about your interest rates because you could say, hey, I'm making more money and bringing in more money on my other investments and my other work. So an 8 9% interest rate isn't as huge to me because it's not as much of my take-home pay, I can still afford it. Sure, sure. And and guess what? If they stopped uh, insuring student loans through Sally Mae, college would be a lot cheaper and more people would have access to education and uh, they wouldn't be indentured servants to student loan debt. See, they've totally maligned that market by offering these government-insured student loans. They just do it everywhere. It's, it's, it's just the best thing is for the government to just get out of the way and stop having all this intervention. But the problem is it's hard to fix because once they're in it, it would be very shocking to pull them out of it. So years ago, we did a lot where we were talking on the show. I mean, look, you know, we've been doing this show for almost 15 years. And years ago, we were talking about what if Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac go out of business? You know, there was a lot of talk about that years ago coming out of the Great Recession. You know, I think it would be great if they would just get out of the way. And nobody in real estate says that but me. I'm a complete weirdo, right? But the big picture, it would be good. At first, it would be difficult, but it would be good overall. And for our investors, it would cause a huge upward pressure on rents. So their rental income would increase probably pretty dramatically because you wouldn't have this false market of people buying homes that really shouldn't be buying homes. You know, the homeownership rate would decline to the natural rate that it should be. And, and you know, all of these things just distort the market like crazy. So, hey, we got to get to your article, but let's just finish up this blogcast real quick. And then we'll get to your article, Adam, and, and talk more. Those values are still not at peak. So as they continue to climb, those homeowners won't be interested in selling. What's more, according to Inman, changing property valuations since the crash sent those values plummeting could play a role in keeping houses off the market. Homeowners may be holding onto their properties as they wait for home prices in their area to go up. Those mid-range homeowners' reluctance to upsize creates a bottleneck for buyers on the lower end of the home purchasing ladder. Fewer lower-priced homes are available to first-time buyers, for example. And as owners hang on to their houses indefinitely, 
those buyers face a long wait for available properties. What lies ahead? Other forces at play in the economy as a whole could loosen up the home shortage. A downturn in employment or a shift in key industries could prompt some homeowners to sell. Demographic shifts, too, could lead to more available housing as an aging population opts to downsize rather than upsize. For now, though, the short supply of housing for sale affects investors as well as residential buyers. It's a good time to be an area agnostic, as Jason Hartman says, and keep a diverse portfolio that can accommodate the ups and downs of markets everywhere. Thanks for listening to this audio blog, and please see disclaimers and important information at the website. Okay, so that's one of our uh, blogcasts available on Alexa or on iTunes or any podcast platform. Adam, let's talk about this article and look at some of the specific markets mentioned in your article. Absolutely. So there are, out of the top 10 markets of millennial mortgages coming in, four of them are actually markets that we invest in. There's Indianapolis, where 47% of the new mortgages are going towards millennials, which is year over year from 17 to 18, it's almost 5%. In increase, that's right. the increase, yeah, increase, right? Okay, so so a lot more millennials buying in places like Indianapolis. There's Indianapolis, Cleveland, Columbus, and Cincinnati are places that we have properties that are, right. Cleveland's 49% of the money goes to millennials, Columbus right. is 51%, and Cincinnati is 52%, and all of those are an increase of 4 to 5% year over year yeah. from 17 so, to 18. So th- 3.7 in Cleveland and St. Louis, you know, we did a lot in St. Louis years ago, that's a 3.6 increase. And so it's kind of interesting, what does this mean? I don't know if there's anything conclusive we could say at this time, because if, if times get tough, yes, they don't have much money in these houses, there's not much equity, but the debt to income ratios are pretty reasonable, assuming they're accurate and there's not a bunch well, of mortgage fraud in there, which I, I think they probably are pretty accurate now. It's probably accurate. However, you have to take into account what we just talked about, which is student loan debt. And the mm-hmm. reason is, if you're only paying 25% of your income towards your house, that's one thing. Right, but, but you've got you're another about, 7%. Yeah, you've got another 7%. So realistically, yeah. you're still right. at the same level as everybody else. Well, that's a good point. That's a very good point you make, folks. So, that's a good point. So yeah. if the federal government comes out and does some of the student loan debt forgiveness that they've discussed potentially doing in the future, you're actually going to see more income going into down payments. And most likely the average home purchase price is going to increase as well, which will get millennials out of the home market that we purchase in. Yeah, that's pretty interesting. And you've still though got this huge shortage. I mean, look, that article, that Alexa article that we we played for you a moment ago, there is still this huge shortage of starter homes, of entry-level housing. It makes me think it'll be Even if this market does hit the skids and these millennials start walking away as here's an interesting just nuanced point, but maybe not nuanced. The millennial generation was so impacted psychologically by seeing their parents get hurt in the housing market and they saw their parents just walk away. You know, and their parents probably made a good decision. They just strategically defaulted millions of them on their homes. When the millennials were in their formative years, this was an important time. You know, most of that thick part of the millennial generation 
they were teenagers at this time. They were really mindful. It, it might have changed their whole life. It might have taken them out of the school district. It might have been embarrassing to their friends to, you know, see the, the grass get overgrown in front of their house, to see, you know, their parents kicked out of the house. Or maybe their parents just walked away before getting actually evicted. Or, you know, maybe they ended up with cash for keys. Who knows? But the fact is, the millennials, they saw their parents deal with the stress of the Great Recession. And so it's a different thing. Yeah, and you can walk away from your home loan, potentially. You can't walk away from your student loans. That's really scary because the home loan, it's a, you know, almost always a non-recourse loan, meaning the lender's only recourse is to go to the property for the collateral. With the student loan, though, that is not only a recourse loan, meaning they can just collect, it's not forgiven in bankruptcy. And that is mind-boggling. That is a, a very rare type of debt that would actually survive a bankruptcy. It's a lifelong obligation unless there's a big change with the government. Do you think that's possible, Adam? Uh, have you done much research into that? I have not. No, I haven't. I'm guessing you and your wife probably have some student loans, or you had them. Maybe you've grown out of them now. We had them. We were fortunate enough that we only had to take out my wife went to grad school and got her master's for nurse anesthesia i stopped i didn't go to grad school i had the schooling i needed but i was the kind i came into college with a lot of money saved up i started working whenever i was probably nine i was helping my mom's dad had a lawn mowing business and so i helped out with that and got a couple bucks an hour and my parents instilled in me a saving and I had to save 50% of everything mm -hmm. that I made. And yeah. I could spend the other 50% for however I want, but I'm cheap. And so I saved about 95% of what I made. So I was able to pay my way through college. My parents gave me a little bit of money. They pretty much covered most of tuition every semester and I mm -hmm. paid for the rest. So I came out with no debt. Aaron's parents paid for everything for her. So she came out with no debt. So we had about 60 or 70,000 for her grad school because we lived off of my salary and paid tuition with her student loans. And then when she got out, we just dumped our money in to get rid of it because I think her rate was around 7%. Yeah, so we, just, wow. we said, let's get rid of this. Another component of this that's very interesting is how millennials, of course, we've talked about how they're delaying marriage. There's an article here that's, uh, you know, it was a link at the bottom of the other one you were talking about. Millennial couples are buying homes before they get married. Mm -hmm. And I guess the view of the author is they're making a risky move that shows how different they really are from their parents. And they just don't view cohabitation or marriage the same way their parents did, not even close. And um, they're buying houses together, you know, as singles. And there's absolutely no stigma to that, right. for the yeah. record. I mean, if, right. if I hear that some people moved in together, had a kid together, and they were not married, it's kind of of the, eh, okay. Yeah. So what? Yeah, right. It's just not the way it was viewed before. So higher housing prices are making this, you know, very attractive to split the mortgage, right? Mm -hmm. But a key component of this, as we've talked about, only touched on a few minutes ago, is that it's not only an issue of are they over their head or not, which remains a little bit undetermined. Sorry, we can't be more conclusive in this uh, show, folks, but we're just giving you the news, right? But the thing that is interesting about it is that they probably can exit pretty easily just because of this still very pronounced shortage 
in the marketplace of entry-level housing. So even if they are in over their heads, as long as they can sell, as long as they can exit rather easily, if they have to exit, if they get in trouble, probably not so bad. And I think because there's this massive shortage of entry-level housing, they probably could exit pretty easily. So yeah, interesting topic, Adam. Interesting. Any yeah. conclusion on these thoughts here? No, I actually hadn't thought about the ability to exit so quickly. And yeah, I mean, I agree, especially the cities that they're purchasing in. If they're purchasing in Indianapolis, Cleveland, Columbus, Cincinnati, assuming they've bought the lower end stuff, they could sell that pretty quickly in yeah. today's market since the higher end is softening, but they're not buying the higher end softening yeah. market. So. Yeah, there's a, there's a big shortage for years to come of entry-level housing. And hey, investors, be happy. Most of you listening that have been buying through our network for years, you own that entry-level housing. So congratulations. (laughs) You've You've got a very good future ahead. Thank you all who have entered our YouTube contest for our new YouTube channel. You know, we we just love it. The comments are great. So keep them coming. Here is a little audio clip on how to enter that contest. And you got to do it quick because the contest will be ending soon. So here you go. Adam, thanks for joining me. Have a good one. Hey, I'd like to introduce someone whose voice you've heard on the show before, and that is Chad. And we have a fantastic little YouTube raffle for you. Chad, what's it all about? Yes, we have an exciting opportunity coming up for you to be able to win a free ticket to meet the Masters coming up in March or a $500 travel allowance. Here's what you need to do to be able to win one of those things. We will be selecting a winner on March 4th when the contest ends. And all you have to do is go to the YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash Jason Hartman Real Estate. Subscribe if you haven't already. Then pick any video to watch. There's a variety of categories, everything about real estate investing from finding the right markets, analyzing real estate deals, the economics of real estate investing, property management, financing. There's a whole wide range of videos that you can choose from and choose one that you think would be interesting to you. Watch it and then go to the comments section and comment just a quick one sentence comment on something that you learned from that video and make sure to include the hashtag JHLive in the comment and that will enter you into this raffle. Okay, so that's real easy. You just go to youtube.com slash Jason Hartman Real Estate, subscribe to the channel and then watch any video you like and make a comment below the video of one thing you learned, include the hashtag JHLive, and that will enter you in the raffle to win a free ticket to meet the Masters or a $500 travel allowance. This ends on March 4th, so be sure to get it done before March 4th. We look forward to seeing you at Meet the Masters. Thanks for joining us, Chad. Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. Please be sure to subscribe so that you don't miss any episodes. Be sure to check out the show's specific website and our general website, HartmanMedia.com, for appropriate disclaimers and terms of service. Remember that guest opinions are their own. And if you require specific legal or tax advice or advice in any other specialized area, please consult an appropriate professional. And we also very much appreciate you reviewing the show. Please go to iTunes or Stitcher Radio or whatever platform you're using and write a review for the show. We would very much appreciate that. And be sure to make it official and subscribe so you do not miss any episodes. We look forward to seeing you on the next episode.